Hello and welcome back to another installment of the Comics Pals Book Club. This month for your listening entertainment, we're going to be covering The Sandman, issues 1 through 16, volumes 1 and 2 if you collected in trade. Uh, this is written by Neil Gaiman with art from Sam Keith, Mike Dringenberg, Malcolm Jones III, Daniel Vazo on colors, Todd Klein on letters, David McKean on cover arts, Michael Zuli, Chris Piccolo, a incredible team that makes up what I think is one of the, um, one of the, my, in my opinion, the most important, I think, graphic novels and comics that were sort of developed out of the, the 90s. This is one of those books that was sort of hit that next sort of level status with the, with the population and the, with the, the normies, quote unquote, you know, the uninitiated. Sure. Right up there with Onslaught. Right up there of with course. Onslaught, for those of you who listened to last month's wonderful episode uh so for anybody who hasn't read this book i think it serves a a few purposes which we'll get into um uh, before we do that i just want to let you guys know where you can find us we are the comics pals on facebook instagram twitter Uh, be sure to check out our other book clubs last month's was battle chases a lot of fun a listener request as well from one matt murphy in the discord so if you definitely want to let us know your opinions on either that or recommend us another book club be sure to join our discord as that's probably the best and easiest way to get in touch with any one of us and to to let us know how you feel and how you enjoyed about either this or any other book club speaking of other book clubs one of my personal favorites swamp thing came out for what is that august Uh, that was a you're just gonna list all the ones we did last year. Uh, I, you know what? I, I, I might as well. Uh, but that was a, a personal favorite of mine. I don't think anyone tuning in might know why, but you know, it, it holds a special place in my heart. Who knows? You might find out why on the episode. <laughs> but okay. for uh, uh, to start, I think I want to get an understanding of how you guys like the book because i think this one is maybe going to be a little decisive in my opinion but i want to sort of you mean you mean divisive no decisive oh okay. did i say like, decisive no, I fair mean, enough I guess, I guess both honestly you know what yeah sure. devices <laughs> this okay. is a real device book <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah i want to start uh with pete okay um I I really like the book. I, I found a lot to like in it. I think that there are there are things that we'll probably get into about it that um, I could definitely see not working for some people. And I think that there are things about it that um, didn't always work for me. But uh, I reading this book, I definitely get why you like it. Hell yeah, baby! And I. Uh, I think it reminds me of a lot of what I f- found to be good about Swamp Thing. Yes. Um, but with a with a different flavor and, you know, m- maybe arguably not quite as good an execution. But I think um, if, if you like that sort of book, if you like stories about uh, characters who are you know, less grounded and, you know, trying to find the humanity in non-human characters, I, I think you'll get a lot out of this book. And uh, I will say, I think, despite any, you know, any things about it that might not have quite landed for me here or there, um, I, I definitely get why 
it has the the respect that it does and why it carries the why the name carries the weight that it does mm. and uh before somebody else jumps in actually so neil had originally wanted to sort of pitch a sort of swamp thing story prior to his uh his sort of run on any sort of dc book or sandman in, in general that was one of like the pitches that he there came in like the short story submission so you know very very much uh taking from some of that yeah obviously i'm a very astute reader so that makes <laughs> sense uh anyone else kale sure um so i i i like it um i i have re- i read them in high school i think i got four I got through four volumes. Oh. Um, can I tell a quick anecdote? Yeah, sure. Um, so in high school, um, I'd moved from Kansas with my family back to Texas, and we uh, were living with my grandmother at the time. And she has the the type of um, dining room that's very... Um, set in place it's very um you know almost a, almost doll's house level like not a room to actually be dined in but yeah yes exactly okay. <laughs> you only dine in there when there are parties and when the otherwise queen comes, yeah break out the good china but so you know things in there are bright um and there's this dark blue tablecloth you know over the table next to the china cabinet anyway so every day I would come in and I would put whatever comic book I was reading on the table and then my keys and my phone and my wallet on top of it because that's just where I put things and I would go in and out. So I had, I think it might have been the second volume, uh, which we'll get into. And when when you remember that I come from quite a religious family... <laughs> <laughs> You can imagine how problematic that probably was. It didn't end up being a big deal. Uh, I got one warning. My mom picked it up and said, she said, she picked it up and said, "Um, what is this doing here? I said, oh, it's this great, this book about, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. And she went, I know what it's about. Oh, another fan? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. And then she said, is this the kind of person you want to be? Whoa. Jesus. Wow. You know, quiet and stoic. <laughs> or someone who reads horror books. Yeah, books right. about magic. This is a so, book of the devil, son. She said, please get this out of the house. <laughs> so I took it out and I haven't, I had, I haven't read them since, but not because of that, just because I never got around to them again. You were scarred. <laughs> no, that's my Harry Potter story. <laughs> I don't oh think God. they're very dissimilar. And and much <laughs> like uh, something that you get out of the house, or in this case, the dog house, Phil, how do you feel about this? <laughs> okay. Uh, B plus transition. Thanks. Uh, um, you know, it's funny. We often start these segments talking about expectations, and that's kind of where I wanted to lead into this, because for me, I've never read this before, and my primary kind of cultural knowledge of this comes from Dave McKean covers, right? So I kind of expected Mm. it to have that, even though I knew it was only covers, my my expectation was that it was going to be filled with 
very surrealist kind of Dave McCain style art in the interiors throughout, you know, uh, kind of resembling the Grant Morrison, Batman, Arkham, Serious House on Serious Earth book. Yeah, that's not what it was. And it honestly, you know, it's like you don't appreciate the masters at work until you like revisit them. Uh, like you, I, sometimes you take it for granted, I guess. Like I think of Steven Spielberg movies and, and I've, often would take them for granted for years. And then I rewatched a lot of them and I was like, these are all like masterpieces. Um, that's how I felt reading this. It, it, it harkened the feelings of reading like animal man and, and doom patrol mm, and stuff yeah. like that real prime yeah. early nineties vertigo. These, these British like masters who truly revolutionized the medium. Uh, I thought it was incredible. It really made me um, introspective and it had like a profound, uh, indelible impact on me and and in addition to that i really really uh, appreciate uh corp uh, corporealizing uh intangible concepts like dreams and death and things like that that's one reason i like the marvel uh cosmic stuff because it often will provide uh, uh corporeal you know uh, tangible versions of intangible concepts and that is pertinent here um and also just narratively it like even like the first eight issues or so are kind of episodic one like one being very uh they were all very self-contained even though they led narratively one thing into another uh each issue was an incredibly satisfying read it's something that uh i've harked on in 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 reading modern comics before is that there's often an effort to um like a single episode of something is often spanned over three issues or something with a comic from the late eighties, early nineties, uh, or even before that, uh, an episode is often condensed into a single 20 to 30 page issue. And that's always a really, uh, satisfying experience to finish an issue. Uh, you know, we, we read empire for the proper show recently and, and it certainly, you know, each issue wasn't a satisfying independent read or anything. And it, it happens with a lot of books where we, we talk about how we have to wait until the entirety is done. You know, I could have read just issue one of Sandman and been like, this is great. And that, that's something that was really true in a lot of Vertigo books I saw at the time. So, yeah, I love this book a lot. I, I like that you brought that up because it reminds me of the conversation we had around Swamp Thing where we were like, oh, this was my favorite issue of yes. the run, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I, I got that feeling in this one too where I remember there were certain issues where I was like, wow, what an issue, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I don't I don't feel like you – I don't get that same feeling about modern comics as much because I think of the point that you're making. Where We it, read Strange Adventures and it, we don't know how to feel because it's very much a missing puzzle at all times. Yeah, it's part of a whole, you yeah. know? We're like, this is too, but it – the episodic nature of it um, is, I think, definitely to its benefit. So I had no experience with this book, really. But I've been ready for this for, like, <laughs> 10 years. He's been training you his whole life. Wait, wait. You've been training your whole life for Marco to tell you to read a book? Look, just look at this. Oh, wow. Yo, what? Is that an absolute edition? Oh, it sure is. Ah, I love that. It's so big. Hold on a second. All right, switch to the uh, audio listeners. Switch to the the YouTube version now. Holy shit. Oh, that's beautiful. Dude, 
Sean can't even fit the book in the shot because it's so that's, goddamn yeah, it's big. Huge. That's that's an absolute edition. It's printed on archival paper. Yeah. I think it's like eleven by fourteen, and like oh. the entire wow. back of the book is just yeah. It, this is meant to oh. make the art pop. Wow. Yeah. Is that the whole series or? Uh, no, this is just volume one. I have volume oh two. Oh my god! <laughs> Wait, volume two in that format? Yeah. Oh my god! That's great, man. Ugh. Wait, yeah. what? That is vol- that's volume one? This is well, volume one in terms of the absolute editions, but it's not. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh it's, but it spans like like the two? It, it's, 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 more than, it's more than just what we read here. It includes, okay. yeah, like 20. How many issues? Yeah, I want to say 20-something. Um, if it's 25, that would if there were three of them, that would line up because I think there's 75 in the whole run. Something like that. So it, oh, it, man. It has uh, 20 issues. Okay. And okay. then it also has... A bunch of extra content as well. Wow, cool. that's wild. Cool. Yeah. That's 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 awesome. That thing is awesome. Now, what a way to experience this book. I bet that was fucking beautiful on that archival paper. I started reading this digitally, um, more recently, and I was like, oh, okay, whatever. Then I dug this out, and I started reading it like this, and I was like, oh my god, this is so good. <laughs> Yeah. So mind blowing. I'm sure, yeah, I'm I'm sure reading it as like a a giant tome yes. instead of the the graphic novel totally adds to the experience. Exactly, it, it's <sighs> it's stunning, um, and I had such a great time reading it. As much for the format that I was able to read it in as the content itself, and very much in a very Sandman-y way, whisked me off. Into the '90s, where I felt like I became a child again, watching this huge book in your lap <laughs> with this massive book in my lap. But like you know, '90s shows, especially like the horror bent ones, had a way of you know telling you a full story that scared you and made you think in 30 minutes. Yes, yeah. and yeah. this is yeah. what that was like for me in terms of the experience, and. I didn't care what the story was as much because I was like, wow, all of this is so amazing. Like, the story didn't matter as much. There are issues that I read that I'm not even sure why they were there, but they were crazy. And they were told so well that it's like, okay, I don't know how this relates to anything I just saw, but it was great. And that was that's the biggest thing I can say about my experience. There was some stuff... Where I was like, okay, uh, this is this is just doesn't make any sense. I'm so confused, um, <laughs> yeah. and that's fine. That's cool. It was also an extremely dark book, which again brings me back to that that '90s, uh, late '80s stuff. And I really appreciated how fearless Gaiman was in terms of what he was willing to try to say with the story, but then also how fearless the entire creative team was in the presentation. There are some things that happen in this book uh, creatively that I feel like it's pretty clear that they originated here. Uh, You know, stuff like turning the page the way that the book makes you turn it. Um, Mm. Maybe that existed elsewhere prior to this. I don't know, but I know that this is the earliest book that I know of where that happens. And I thought that was mind-blowing. Uh, I think Swamp Thing did It's probably that. safe to say that that was probably one of the early, like, earliest examples, even if it wasn't the first, that, like, a mass audience was exposed to, though. Yeah. Like, oh, creators yeah. who are doing that today probably were inspired by Sandman, not 
whatever Sandman might have been inspired by. Right. So I say all that to say that uh, I had very, very high expectations. I don't know if my expectations were met, but that's not necessarily because of the book itself. Hmm. Okay. So I had a great time. Makes sense. Is Culturally, this is a pillar. You know, this is right up there with, you know, Animal Watchmen, Man and I would Watchmen say. And like the, it's up there with all those. Yeah, like the cream of the crop classics. And I remember uh, Marco made the comment of this being like a book that broke through to like the normies. I think this was the second book after Watchmen to be put on the New York Times bestsellers list. So it's like, it's got like that level of, oh, the broader public decided this is one of the good comic books. Right, right. You know? Uh, it was think, it was definitely up there. I think there. Dark Knight I, 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 Returns was for that, but it doesn't Maybe. Matter. Yeah. Yeah, either way, it's one of the first. It definitely was, though, on, on, the, on the bestseller list. So... Um. Awesome. I mean, uh, I'm super glad that that like, and I I think I'm I'm glad that you guys enjoyed it as much as you did, and I'm, I'm sure that I'm surprised you thought it was gonna be so divisive. It's so celebrated. I mean, it, it is, but I feel like there are um, I feel like for me upon this reread, like I hadn't read it in maybe uh, four years. Uh, there were some other things like structurally that we'll probably get into that I um that uh well I, I wanted to talk about um sure. Yeah. So just to start, I don't think it's like above criticism. That's no. Fair. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but I would be surprised if one of us didn't get something out of it, though. Like if somebody came here and was like, "Nah, wasn't for me <laughs> at all." I think I would have been surprised by that. That would have been an opinion to dig into, right? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me why this classic isn't good enough for you. So the it, it opens up just to like to set set the stage here. It opens up with a secret order um the order of ancient mysteries trying to capture the embodiment or as it's later understood the anthropomorphic personification of death the it's an occult following that's led by the magus um uh alex burgess or rather roger burgess and in the process of trying to summon these people or this uh entity he inadvertently summons dream instead they capture him, and the entire first issue spans the length of 1916 through 1988 uh, as a way to sort of tell the story around what happens with Dream and how the order sort of falls, how new succession takes over. Um, I So when I had first read this, it was a start and stop for me. I think this was a very slow way to introduce the the character and the concepts and sort of the world. Uh, Gaiman references this as a more classic English horror story. I, I was curious about how you guys felt this compared to something like a Swamp Thing was effective as an opening issue, if not, or, or if so. I really uh, dug it. Um, I I thought it was it it is a slow burn, but I I think I've I've said a lot on this show. Like I I'm a, the type of reader that doesn't mind a slow burn if it is satisfying. And I feel like that issue, if that had been drawn out over multiple issues, I maybe that wouldn't jive for me as much. But the fact that like they kind of indirectly establish Dream and, you know, through these other characters and showing like his influence without actually being present, I think does a really good job of establishing like I don't know, like, I guess what he is, you know, and, and I thought that um, the, the final reveal of it, 
like getting to the end and like, oh, this is actually where the story starts. It got me excited to just jump into the next one and be like, okay, great. Like what, so what does that mean now? Right? Like what does this mean for him now that he's been stripped of all this power and he needs to reestablish himself after a hundred years, right? It's, it's, it's a good way to establish a lot of heady concepts in a way through, through a human character which like helps you contextualize it for yourself. Well, and establish uh stakes as well in a way that you can understand it. Like, you know, his his absence for 100 years what what this issue does really really well is it it shows like Pete said through the lenses of various people and various events around the world including reaching into the deep DC universe, mm. you know, with a mention of Wesley Dodds uh to show that you know, this has an effect and it means something. Your contemporary, the original Sandman, Kale. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you believe I trained him? <laughs> um, I, I also, I really like that as a device that's used throughout the book, which is like establishing minor characters that may only be relevant for an issue, but giving them like a name and a backstory and making you feel something about them as even if it's just as a means to advance the story um is a really really great device that Gaiman makes use of throughout but i think this issue uh i liked how it made me understand that that was going to be a device because i remember they kept introducing characters and i was like how many fucking characters are in this book yeah, yep. you know like what like and then you get to a point where like oh okay they don't all matter but they do matter in the context of this issue and they make this issue better there's Kind of, there's there's a rule in like classical writing that um, no line is a wasted line. Everything means something, and, and that is certainly true here. And this is a wordy book, and other books by less lesser writers have complained about volume of words because they don't seem to matter. What and you? <laughs> you love Bendis, yes. <laughs> Who? Me? Anyway. Um But you know I don't I don't even know if I would call it a slow burn because uh everything is 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 significant. We we are dropped sure. into this environment and we don't know who this is. They you know, this 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 craven uh magic uh you know Alistair Sims type community uh you know is trying to conjure death they conjure dreams and and everything is is you know uh, is uh, exposition meaningful exposition as we're establishing like tone setting and character and it establishes his motive uh and all this stuff in the first issue really pays off when he meets his sister later because it all kind of establishes character uh and because he's such a talented writer uh you know everything flows so well every 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 scripted type narrative balloon uh isn't a drag to read because it all feels like it's actually sean complains sometimes with older comics how they'll write what's already on the page (laughs) we can see it but you're describing what we're already saying that doesn't happen here gaiman for the most part, I didn't notice. Maybe Sean will notice an example of this, but I didn't really notice an example where it's uh, distractingly detracting from what's on the page. I feel like he he has faith in you to keep up. 
Yeah. Yes. Even when what's yeah. visually on the page is unusual. Uh, I I definitely agree. Um, I think a lot of a lot of times throughout this series, I had two feelings simultaneously about what was happening. So, on the one hand, this first issue has absolutely nothing to do save for a small few characters with what we're going to see later. And that is generally frustrating. Generally speaking, if you're going to introduce this many characters, it should be because they're going to be relevant. Otherwise, most people would say, I would say, those pages are better spent doing other things. But at the same time, all of this is in service of building up to this grand reveal, a character who is larger than life, um, and introducing you very cleanly, actually, into a world that is not ours. And you're almost seduced. You're almost brought into it. Um, and you can't really turn your eyes away, which is, I mean, it's, it's expert level stuff. And... You don't know what's going on. You don't know who your POV character is. You don't know who you're supposed to care about um, because so much of it does also seem fleeting. And it is fleeting. Um, and I think that there's a lot that Gaiman is saying even in those choices that he does make. Um, and I really love that. I love the passage of time, the 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 decades that we observe these characters in, 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 in what has happened. Um, and I think it's it's expertly done, but at the exact same time, it's what you would say you shouldn't do. And I think that's so interesting about this issue. And I think I felt that way a lot throughout this series. I think um, it, it speaks to something that Phil said earlier, right? Where like in the hands of a lesser writer, I think those would be things that don't work. Yep, that's um, exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. And I think like, I think we've seen a lot more examples of that after this book. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Where maybe uh, people learn the wrong lessons from it. It's imitation of a style, and it. Gaiman doesn't do it for the sake of doing it. He does it because, as Sean said, it's in a service to the story. And and when he's establishing these characters in the early twentieth century who are impacted by the absence of dreams, it's novel, and it does it to establish a larger concept. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's in service of something greater that you need to understand to move forward, and I think that 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 works, right? And I think um, I think it's it's very much like the old adage of right, you need to know the rules to be able to break them, and it's clear that you know this isn't Gaiman's first rodeo, mm -hmm. right? Like he's already uh, an accomplished, pretty accomplished writer at this point, and is able to uh, to to get away with things that I think other people couldn't. There's a uh, a foreword by Gaiman where he, he states, uh, but of course we never see the beginning. We come in in the middle after the lights have gone down and try to make sense of the story so far. Whisper to our neighbors, who's he, who's she? Have they met each other? Have they met each other before? We get by. And I think I think that sort of exemplifies like what we're sort of talking about in which you know, we, we get dropped into this world. We we don't see the buildup of Roderick Burgess necessarily. You know, we don't see how he gets into the order, how he learns about it, how he takes control, how he becomes a leader and then plans to capture him. He they're in the process of it. Death is in the process of doing his thing. I mean, sorry, Dream is in the process of doing his thing. He isn't necessarily 
Uh, we don't see the backstory and his origin and whatnot. We, it, it all coalesces into this, and we need to catch up. Right. Because time has moved. We're the ones inserting ourselves into this time. Um, I think the fact that you don't get his origin makes him feel it, it assists in establishing him as long, larger than life as this entity that doesn't have a clear beginning, yeah. right? Like he just is. Especially as we like what uh, what Sean mentioned, we, we see the decades sort of go by, and and that is what what helps us to contextualize. Also, like this is something other otherworldly. So this is something other, and 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 something that we have only scratched the surface of understanding. Right. We we move on in this story where he escapes. He traps uh, his cap, the son of his captor, because again, time has passed. Alex Burgess in a state of never-ending waking, which was so fucking cool. That's such a good scene. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he essentially goes out to, not necessarily exact revenge, but to pick up and and salvage his tools, as he says, his tools of office. He, In the process of being captured, he loses his ruby, which holds portions of his power, his pouch of sand, he is a sandman, and his helmet, which is his helm of office. And he goes off to sort of figure out where they've gone. And this is how we get into the rest of the, the story. And the That's like the whole first volume, right? That's is, the whole first volume. Him getting all yeah. the stuff back, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, I like that in the uh, as we progress in the story, what gaming sort of does is dig up different sort of characters. And especially ones that I'm familiar with that I can kind of be like, oh, I, I get that. Like, like Me too now. Yeah. Because I read Swamp Thing. There you go. Cain <laughs> and Abel. So he builds upon the- That the, was cool. The lore of that. Man, Cain and Abel are some of my favorite. I wasn't on the Swamp Thing episode, but Cain and Abel are some of my favorite, like, weird, esoteric uh, DC characters that just only- I don't even think they pop up anymore- they just, they're so far reaching, far back. Someone so long ago with the House of Mystery and the House of Secrets titles, and they just like Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman, surely Morrison did too, just popped them in there, just, you know, just a little pepper of Cain and Abel yeah. in there. Just, they're just so good. Um, like, uh, this was uh, one of the first examples of a theme that became pretty normalized for me reading this book which is that it just really like bummed me out like all their interactions because i just feel a lot of sympathy oh my god you know yes, and yes, like yeah there's yeah. there's a lot of this book that is just about making you uncomfortable um but in a good way <laughs> real quick i i have to correct myself so that no one writes into us and makes fun of me for getting this wrong i said alistair sims who alec is clearly based on that's the guy who played ebenezer scrooge in the 50s i was talking about alistair crowley Made a complaint oh. myself, folks. <laughs> Did not clock that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's clearly who, like, that's like clearly like a very Crowley type character that's conjuring this this entity and uh, this dark magic with a K. And so it's satisfying. Like, it, uh, it's satisfying when, well, I don't know. It, it, is it satisfying when Dream exacts, when, when Morbius exacts his revenge on, on him? Say Morbius? Mobius, sorry. Mobius. Say Mobius? I, uh, it's Morpheus. Morpheus. Yeah. <laughs> Take three. There we go. Uh, I, I'm f- I'm fighting him right now. I don't know what you guys are. <laughs> I think artistically it's satisfying. Um, 
I don't I think like you're not engaged in it enough for it to be like oh yes revenge but right. I kind of like that that comes up in the narrative later yeah. where like when Dream is like oh what do I do now he's like ah it wasn't as satisfying as I thought it would be to take revenge mm-hmm. you know and it's like yeah that makes sense you were sitting on it for a hundred years and it was over very quickly well and I think and this comes up a couple of times especially in this first volume where you know the things he does are sort of at, like they I don't think they are satisfying because he is endless so the things he does you know like in in this case yeah you're right it's not satisfying because what's so he'll die big fucking deal right, to him to 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 dream it's to like dream. big fucking deal yeah 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 um and later on we see uh the story of his first love whom we see previous to this story in hell yep and she's like but i still love you and he's like yeah i I still love you too but i'm still mad yeah and he just leaves her and that that weirdly uh, that didn't feel good either no especially after reading the story like oh yeah i mean yeah that's that's something that i would love to talk about at some point about like dream as a character where like yes i really oscillated a lot between liking and not liking him at all i mean uh let, let's get to it now because i mean where issue two starts to like introduce some of his character as he gets back into the the uh his into the his dream realm. into the dreaming and he's off to go find his stuff you know he's he starts off as like brooding and sort of uh like mad but i think what what stands out to me was his it all feels sort of calculated it's not necessarily like like he reacts out of let's say an emotion but he doesn't necessarily uh he's methodical about his approach to certain things and that 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 sort of bleeds into the subsequent issues of him meeting constantine trying to find the pouch of sand going to hell and and how he organizes himself in order to do the things that he needs to be doing it's interesting that you say that because like i think it was Something that I really liked about it is that I think Dream has a perception of himself as being less human than he is. Yes. Yep. Um, he thinks of himself as being together and like a planner and all these things, but like he acts impulsively several times, right? Like him taking a lover was something he wasn't supposed to do. And like him scorning her to eternal damnation was a pretty like, you know, like um, it's a very emotional response. And like he gets offended when mortals like us like assume to know him or like you know project emotion onto him even though it might be true like and we see that happen again and again i think the first example just like to jump to it uh probably my favorite one of my favorite issues is the sound of her wings where he, he meets his sister and he has the dialogue it, that's a great it, issue they meet in the park yeah like like he he sort of reconstitutes himself because he has, to your point, right? He 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 exacted revenge. It wasn't satisfactory. Nothing that he had done up to that point was satisfactory. And we'll touch on like some of the stuff he had done, but like, uh, he he has to in engage in the 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 lifespan and the minutia of being a human, like with his sister Death as they travel, in order for him to sort of feel something, which, to your point, is counter to what he thinks of himself. Right. So that's 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 where I came in. I didn't feel positively or negatively about Dream. And if anything, it was 
this is a bigger grandeur, you know, and you kind of get that through the lens of other characters. Martian Manhunter meets him, he's an old god of Mars. When John Constantine meets him, it's like, oh, mm-hmm. here's the Sandman. Uh, that, and you, that's the feeling you get. Right or wrong, it doesn't matter, this is a god. And don't have to feel positively or negatively about it. It's a concept. It isn't until he meets his sister Death or he's humanized. Yeah. And that's when the that's the point where you feel for me at least, I'm I start sympathizing with this as a person, not an entity. What I thought was cool about that too is like it's at the end of his trials, you know, he goes through this trial of getting his stuff back, and then that's like when he is whole enough to be introspective. Yeah. Sean? Sorry, Shauna, you were trying to get a word in there. These godlike characters are often a lot more human than they think they are. That's that's a super common thing. Odin is, you know, very human in terms of how he behaves. Yeah. Um so it it it's it wasn't it wasn't really surprising that Dream was like that. Um it 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 made him someone that you could have feelings about. I think what's often interesting about characters like that is that you can have all the feelings about them because they're so <laughs> sure. powerful that they're going to do things eventually that you're not going to like unless they are mm. inclined towards good but they don't have to be so why should they be you know what reason does dream have to consider the value of human life if he has a job to do um yeah and i love having to watch those kinds of moments take place with characters like this it's a very human thing to have to consider the scale of justice and right and wrong and ethics. But when it's a God, there is no worry of eternal damnation. And that's clear here because oftentimes in morality, people are worried about the consequences of their actions, whether it means in life, they be imprisoned or they get retribution by or someone gets retribution on them for a wrong you know, that's done. Or if they're, if they're worried more, you know, metaphysically about their soul, but if you're a larger entity like like Dream, you go and confront the, the the three kings of hell and you know, you don't really consider real consequences of your actions because you're above these kind of consequences. So when he actually has to worry about a destiny or a purpose that's really human that's a real human experience of like why am I here and what am I going to do next? To your point, Sean, I think I think that's best sorry, were you gonna say something? I was gonna say uh, similarly, that's why it was difficult to feel sympathy for him in the first issue, because once, you know, a couple of decades pass and this dude is completely fine, it's like, okay, well, he's obviously not normal. I mean, just as soon as he takes off his, his gear, it's like, okay, this is not a human. So who cares? Like, not who cares? Like, I don't care, but who cares? Like, he's going to outlive this problem. And he's going to outlive yeah, any sure. problem. So why should I feel sympathy? If anything, I'm like, damn, whoever he finally unleashes on is screwed. You know, <laughs> you think more about who's going to be on the receiving end than him himself. And on the receiving end, we get uh, like a, a huge number or like other concepts that I think are good to sort of pit him against. Uh, Phil brought up, you know, him going to to hell to retrieve his helm uh, after that was he's crazy. like after he's gotten his pouch from Constantine and, and that like he 
hooks up with Etrigan. He hooks up with Etrigan again. Oh, he looked great, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, visually, he looked terrifying. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also, there's a, it's a nod to uh, Alan Moore again, because, again, he's a rhymer now. And he's like, things have changed. And I think that was also one of the, the cool things about the that issue in particular. It was about change and how things, especially his experience, death, uh, dreams experience, coming from where he was to now and being able to see all that he had once known is just different. Uh, it's for me, it's just awesome concepts that he plays with considering that this is a concept in and of itself. Right. Something that's eternal, like hell is not even the same anymore. We have, you know, we have the fallen son of, of, of heaven, the fallen angel Lucifer doesn't rule alone anymore. He rules with these, these, uh, uh, pagan, uh, demon deities like Beelzebub and Azael. Uh, and that's really interesting. I don't know. Uh, cause it, it it plays with the mythology of mankind. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is also the one of the first points where we get like the modern Lucifer for uh, for the DC universe. So like from here oh, spins off David Bowie. Yeah, one hundred percent is David Bowie. It's literally just David Bowie. <laughs> but That's cool. this this spins off into its own Vertigo series based off of this, and like something else happens later on in the in the series that becomes the sort of uh base for what lucifer in the dc universe is who wrote that do you know mm, i don't but i can find out it doesn't it doesn't matter uh the other character that i wanted to talk about that we haven't really touched upon is dr d he's really the sort of through line through these couple issues that we end up getting to uh w- do you guys have any idea who, who that is? I, I feel like people who maybe Phil Kale, he's he's an like old JLA enemy. He maybe is. Sean, actually. He, I, looked, I looked him up because I wasn't familiar with him. He, but when they name dropped him, I was like, he must be someone. He's rotting in the basement of Arkham. He, he's a he's a Silver Age Justice League antagonist back when the Justice League first formed, uh, as we know it, Justice League of America. And in fact, if, if, if you guys, a more modern association would be the Justice League cartoon. He's in a two-parter of that. It's a great two-parter. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's the same kind of conflict that any Justice League antagonist needs. Like, oh, this is a character who will fight them in their dreams because this is a pantheon of gods. So I really appreciate how basically Neil Gaiman went and grabbed every dreamlike character that exists in like yep. the mythology uh, of DC Comics, and found a way to incorporate it into like this greater mythos of dreams. Uh, and what he did with him in a very similar way to what like Grant Morrison would do with like Animal Man and, and Doom Patrol is like he found a way to take obscure Silver Age characters and, and contextualize it in a more in this case since it's a horror book gruesome and disturbing way. Definitely, yeah. His in- entire like look was just gnarly. The entire how many like rotting bodies you see throughout this entire yeah. thing is a lot. Um, but, uh, the thing that you just said about like kind of how it loops in the, you know, these, these disparate, uh, pieces of the DC universe, I loved, I think it's in like the second issue when he's like identifying where his, his stuff is. And it's like, it's like these shots of like, it's hell and this, and then Batman. (laughs) And like, I, I love that about like the Vertigo books where they kind of like brush up against the DC universe proper when like 
it still felt more segmented than it does now. Well, I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's a a more uh, a strength of that era of Vertigo is like it 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 brushes up against it, like you say, but it doesn't focus on it mm-hmm. in in a similar way to I think that Young Animal kind of tried to do yeah in its sure. in its time here recently, uh, whereas the reboot of Vertigo here recently didn't do that. And, you know, it could be argued, you know, wasn't successful. Because it's an era of of comics, and we've talked about this on the main show before, where there are a lot more long ongoings that that span years. You know, in this time, you have John Byrne, Superman. And in in this book, it references Keith Giffen's Justice League uh, International, which is another great book of the era. Uh, So when it brushes up against this, it feels very much... uh, like a time and place like oh that is keith giffen's justice league international and it even references it because when we uh, last see martian manhunter he talks about his love for oreos which was like a staple of that book oh uh, really yeah i had no yeah. idea that that was a thing and yeah. i just i that killed me i thought that was like the funniest thing when he's like i have a secret stash of oreos that we can partake in and i'm just like yeah martian manhunter that's a great book <laughs> yeah. uh and i think uh, all of you would love it but my point is uh it it in a way that like uh like some of this stuff is so uh like personified as like a classic of its time like when it brushes up against it in the same way that you know we brush up with like Etrigan from Swamp Thing or or Cain and Abel like we can identify the time and place of where this is it feels it feels like a grounded universe yeah. and, and lived in. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Lived in. Staying on on this topic because we did get a question from the Discord about uh, this topic in particular. So um, Jman three one three had asked. You know, he's amazed. Uh, he says, "I'm amazed how well Gaiman made Sandman fit with the DC continuity and be reader friendly. Could such a book like Sandman be made by the big two today?" And I think uh, Kale kind of touched upon Young Animal being sort of a recontextualization as well as bringing about some of these characters. Uh, I think that that's probably a really good example of something done being done in modern books, but it's done under a sort of certain um, uh, imprint, not always done in like a mainline book. Although at this point, Vertigo is his own thing, but still like it, it it doesn't uh, not as many books try to incorporate characters in the past like this where they integrate them into the mythos of the story that they're trying to tell. I well and I I don't think they're as allowed to do it anymore either. Yeah. Like you know, I feel like back then you could, you know, if you, you they had a, a list where, you know, they could probably say, "Oh, I just want uh, you know, someone from the Justice League to pop in." Today, I feel like that would be a, whoa, whoa, who do you think you are, Scott Snyder? No, you can't use the Justice League. That was actually, a, that was maybe more true at the time. Famously, when Jeff Loeb went to DC, he had a bunch of, a list of characters he wanted to use, and he wasn't allowed to use any of them, so he wrote Challengers of the Unknown. Uh, be- well, but you're talking about creating a whole book. I'm talking about cameos. I, I don't know when, Sean, I, you, you should weigh in on this. I would argue that cameos are more more used and overused now than before um they're Mm. so common 
It's one of the things I notice because I don't like it. Uh, because most of the time it's not done well. And I think in this book in particular, like let's compare this to um, Frank Miller's Daredevil, right? Born Again. So in this yeah. book, you see Martian Manhunter and you see Etrigan and this one and that one. But all they really do is add context to the story that is about Sandman and makes, as Kale said, the world feel lived in. Um, but it doesn't detract. They don't become the star ever. They're not, yeah. they're yeah. not what you're here for. Whereas with Born Again, the only thing we really criticized or one of the few things that we criticized when we did that book club was the fact that it felt like Cap and Thor and Iron Man, as soon as they appeared on page with Daredevil, they felt bigger than him. And it felt like the story kind of got swept away from Daredevil for the period of time that they were involved. And that's the key difference. These cameos were in service of the story. Whereas I could believe that in Born Again, maybe they were to boost sales or maybe, you know, who knows? There's a lot of other reasons why that that one might have happened because of how poor it kind of comes across. Yeah, that that feels like a a choice motivated by we want to put Captain America and Iron Man and Thor on the cover. So they're going to be in this issue, right? Um, Whereas in this, it, it definitely always feels like it's in service of the story, you know, and to speak to the history of the universe. And another little point to make on that is in that book, you have Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man, who are three of the bigger characters in Marvel at the time. Obviously not as big as they are now. Uh, but, you know, and that would be the equivalent of Superman and Batman just popping up in this book and solving problems for you know, Morpheus <laughs> or whatever. Oh, don't worry. We got Dr. D. We're going to haul him back to the Hall of Justice or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we so go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say that you had you had asked us to speak about uh, Doctor D. So yeah, if yeah. you wanted, I was gonna. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Um, that character made me mad. Really, really mad. Yeah, because when he when he you know gets in the car with that woman, I was like, oh, pff, oh this sucks. I don't want to see her die. You know, we'd already seen some death and bad things happen, but he had a gun, and for some reason that made it feel so much more real, was that he had a gun. Uh, And by the end of their ride, I felt so sympathetic for him. I felt like, wow, you know, he's he's just, you know, he's just a little weird, but he's good at heart. And then he shoots her, and I was like, oh, fuck this guy. You know, (laughs) I'm done with this guy. And it was so effective. At making yeah. me hate him. You couldn't have done it any better. It's funny you say that because it pulls back again when he's like in the dream universe in all white. And he basically is – it all comes back to how uh, he's mourning his dead mom and he does it right. in the strangest way. Sure. But I, I think um, to build on, on what Sean said there, that I think uh, – takes back to the point I made earlier about him establishing minor characters as a means to an end. Mm-hmm, yeah. Where, like, they give you all this backstory on this woman just so that you feel something when she dies, you know? Yeah. And it's like, holy fucking shit, Neil Gaiman. Like, you, you, it's a so, such a good bait and switch. And it were I, I totally ate that shit up. <laughs> uh, Kel, you were gonna jump in? I was just gonna make a, a comment about the next issue, um, about, Sean said that you know, I, he couldn't be more angry 
uh, at this guy and then the next issue comes and it's a Dr. D focused issue and <laughs> oh my god and that's alright just him torturing people for like 24 hours that's another example yeah. of using a bunch of minor characters he establishes all these characters in a diner these people you'll never see again in real life in the same way you pass them in a diner it's a moment of time and that's all it is but he gives you every little you know, specific detail about what's happening in that moment in that person's life and he uses it and then spools it and it's you feel awful for all these people because you he makes you realize that in these moments of time these are all real human beings like mm-hmm. yep yep like we are in this moment right like they're not just they're not just people right like they're they're people who have lives and they have loved ones and they have problems aspirations and goals and right and I think uh, this, to, to your point, Phil, on how everything sort of felt contained in each issue, but part of the story, in this issue for me, I definitely liked the juxtaposition of Betty, who was our like sort of main POV for the first part of it, as a yeah. writer who mm-hmm. tries yeah. to draw yeah. and like or, or manipulate the world around her in her stories, but then some guy comes in and actually manipulates yep. reality it's uh, for me was hugely effective to, to bring like a, a, yeah. a horror to it. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was, that was absolutely brilliant. Um, and I like every story that we read that has monstrous characters has collateral damage in the form of human yes. beings. Yep. And, uh, you know, whatever, if the Avengers, if the scroll just blasts New York, all right, well, damn, it'll be rebuilt in Avengers number one. <laughs> um, and and obviously, what happens here, like I, it gets undone. Oh no, it doesn't get undone. It, no, it, it's, no, 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 it's stuck. Yeah, it's stuck. It still felt so much more impactful because we got into the lives of these characters. And the yeah. other part of that is that Neil had already conditioned us to get involved in the lives of small characters yes. yeah. through the yeah, very first point. issue. Oh. So when this happens, it's like, oh my God, this is <laughs> so terrible. Strap in. <laughs> right. On, on the Discord, uh, Tyler he had mentioned that this was probably one of his favorite issues of of this this initial run of this initial yeah. arc sick fuck <laughs> i mean it, i mean that's why it's good though right it's like because it is fucking sick and it makes you uncomfortable yeah but like that's like, like most of the best issues of this book are that are like a really really just dedicated like let's really just zero in on human suffering here for a minute and get you to feel it as much as you can i felt like i was knowing again and like really know these people like I was having conversations with them in a way, and then all these monstrous things happened to them over a period of twenty four hours. I think artistically, that also made me the most interest. Like it, it was probably one of the most interesting issues because we typically talk about how comics they manipulate time and they allow you to sort of experience things in in brackets of time. Uh, but what this does is it it makes you do that plus contextualizes it against something firm which is the 24 hours of a day and and like how many things can you pass make how many how many ways can you make somebody suffer over this kind of limited period by using the the usage of time that comics control it it's funny too because it plays on the genre too in a way yeah this is this is gross horror in so many ways but it's bookended by comedy 
because the scarecrow is like, you'll be back here. And when he comes back, you know, then you're exposed to all the scarecrow's phobias because it's ironic because he wants to inspire fear in everyone, but he himself is afraid of everything. And this is juxtaposed with like nihilism that uh, Morpheus is feeling. So all this horror is bookended by this dark comedy. And it's just from beginning to end of this little mini arc, it's narratively perfect. Well, and, and you also think the whole time that Morpheus or someone is going to come help these poor people. Right. And, like, by the end of the issue, like, correct me if I'm wrong, Morpheus doesn't show up to the next issue when everybody's yep, dead. Yep. He's, he's walking out the door, and, and then Morpheus shows up. And I mean, shit, right? Like, not to jump too far ahead, but the resolution of that issue is he brings John D. back to Arkham Asylum and doesn't make him answer for his actions at all. Um, which was, that was, that was probably the first time that I remember being like, fuck this guy. But, like, fuck yeah. him. Who? Uh, uh, Dream? Dream. Really? Yeah, I was like, fuck you. Yeah. I, I so, uh, uh, I was gonna ask this, but, like, I, I thought that that was sort of appropriate, because he, he realized that this, this person, like, sure, he's, he's, uh, uh, he's done these terrible things, but he's a sick individual, and, and what are you gonna do to somebody who's already tortured? Kill him. But, but, but yeah, why? I mean, but, but if, if we, like, talk- if hell, if hell exists, send him to eternal torture yeah that's my thing right is like he that i think that argument is fine marco but it goes out the window when you learn the context later of the fact that he sent his lover to hell because she was upset about the fact that you know he basically pressured her into a relationship and her entire society gets wiped out and then she goes to hell for that but this guy who just tortured people for 24 hours because it gave him it helped him get his rocks off and he was sad about his mom dying. It's, it's like, different. fuck him. It's different, though. From yeah. Morpheus's perspective, it's a, it's like pity. Yes, it, yes. You're, and a- you're totally right. But like, still that, fucked up. that was the, that's the response that it elicited from me as a human, sure. right? Like, and I think that speaks to the fact that Dream is written in a way that I think makes him feel realistic for what he's supposed to be and what his value system would be and how it would be different than mine. Sean made that point earlier, right? With these godlike characters. If I feel like kind of the Morpheus, like, you know, if your dog goes in the backyard, kills small animals, you know, you don't punish it by killing the dog or whatever. You know, you basically put Dr. D back in the kennel. Sure. Yeah. Sean, you were going to jump in. I was going to say that the the biggest difference between the Dr. D situation and Dream falling in love with that woman is that she hurt him. Dr. D didn't hurt him. Mm. That's 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 really all there is to it. Those people, their lives would have ended anyway at some point not too long from then in a very basic, boring way anyways, whereas he's never going to die. So if you inflict pain on him, that's lasting. Right, yeah. everlasting. You you gotta wonder what death was thinking as she walked into that place too. She's like, well, this is pretty fucked up. All right, <laughs> on to the next one. <laughs> oh man, she was a great character. I, she was, and and she pops up, and uh, like we touched upon it a little bit, but we didn't really focus on her. But I want to focus on her because I think the way that he, that they decide to draw her as this like lively, you know literally she feels like she's full of life she's uh she's young it for me was so effective to to humanize her because 
she feels like somebody whose life is just beginning and getting to like the really mm. good part in contrast to all the things that she does literally ending people's lives. Well, and like with her, right? Like it's not personal. No, sure. Like it's is. just, no. Uh, and like you get the, the feeling that she feels like some level of, of sympathy for them, you know, or empathy towards them where it's like, Oh yeah, that's your lot. It's unfortunate, but well, the, hey, man, the, issue takes time us, to go. the issue takes us through, you know, all the really unfortunate, tragic ways people die. The baby who, dies in the crib mm-hmm. um, the woman who dies on stage because of a total accident the sympathetic old jewish man in new york city like you know these are all sympathetic people uh you know franklin is just a dope playing basketball and gets hit by a truck i'm sure things worked out between him and death by the way like they seem like they had chemistry that's <laughs> neither here nor there um <laughs> maybe he became a crow it, it, and the thing that gay man is trying to really unspool un- here is that death isn't a bad thing yes yes we're we're afraid of it but it's it's just a part of life that comes up in what issue 13 again with the the 14th 15th century or whatever where the guy you know lived centuries long or whatever yep Um, that was literally my favorite issue in the in the series yes really good that issue's great but it it speaks to a greater cosmic element of death death is like being born but backwards it's not something to fear her point is always that like when your time's up time's up I uh, I wanted to just stick on your point about how uh, Dev is she like people fear her and Dream brings this up he he states you know like like there there's so many people who fear her compared to to him the, like mm-hmm. she obviously ends things but like if you contextualize it a certain way she ends suffering she ends she she you know she gives you an eternal sleep she she gives you some semblance of peace whereas dream you have to wake up the next day why is that not a, not something to be afraid of compared to something where you know whatever you believe in right you you're supposed to find some 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 soul uh was it solace 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 yeah i think it's i think it's interesting for gaiman to look outside of himself, look outside of humanity. And he's, you know, obviously writing these characters. He has to think, well, how would they feel about the fact that humans fear death? They can't understand that. They can't, sure. they can't grasp what it would be. What, what's so bad about that? What's so bad about it? It's natural. It's what's supposed to happen. It's going to happen. You can dread it. You can run from it. It's coming. So, I love when these kinds of characters have to consider the plight of humanity. Um, and the, the ultimate plight of humanity is death, but only from a human perspective. Yeah. Uh, but what do you think about why someone would not fear dream in comparison, right? He can literally create nightmares. He can, he can make you feel the things that you would feel in real life, but then you wake up the next day. Because you're still alive. The thing that human beings value more than anything is living. And not every That's single... That's the point of issue 13, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and dreams, well, you know, you wake up. You got a bad one. You got a good one. You still wake up the next day and you're here. And there's a chance to dream again. But in death, there is no dreaming. And I think that's why uh, it's worse. Not just that, but you know, in reality, to us, what do we know of what comes next? 
nothing. We theorize, we believe, um, but we don't actually have a concrete knowledge of what comes next. We could all be bodies in the ground. We could all go to hell and suffer for all eternity, or we could have, you know, eternal salvation or reincarnate. There's endless possibilities of what comes next. So there's a real palpable fear of the unknown. And this book offers no answers for that, by the way. Yeah. Well, it gives a hell. I, I think, I think that uh, Sean is appropriate to answer this. What what comes next, Sean? Because we do know that this one time you tried to convert to Islam, and, and I'm sure there's a doctrine in there. Can Can you explain to us what what that doctrine is and and how you came to it? First of all, as someone who came close to converting to Islam, I find that highly offensive. Um, <laughs> Damn. <laughs> but I, I, to what to what Kale had oh. j- just said, um, I'm not going to answer that question. But, um, Rude. I don't. Well, then I don't want you to respond to my question either. <laughs> uh, there is a hell, but I, I, I feel like we, we only really see demons there or people who are specifically like Condemned sent to there. hell. Yeah, like. Mm. There's no answer as to what the average person who dies, you know, in in a non, like in a normal way, what happens to them, and I think that is a deliberate choice on Gaiman's part. Hmm. Yeah. Um. So the the next arc coming out of this is a doll's house, and there's interestingly a a prologue to this. Uh, it's one of the few issues that doesn't actually fit narratively, but I think it's important because it contextualizes Dream as uh, he's mentioned, I think, by uh, his his helper, Lucian. He he is the king of, of stories. And I was curious like, to what you guys thought, the relationship between Dream and stories and why he would be considered that was like, what is that connection? I was I was wondering about that and I wondered if like it was supposed to like be speaking to the idea that like that's the origin of stories or something like that right that like because uh, dreams I, w- I would imagine are more primal right than stories that like you would imagine that humans would dream before we could share stories before we had language before we had art you know and um, I thought of that as kind of one feeding into the other. But I, I didn't never I never really got like a clear answer on that. That was just kind of what it came to for me when I asked myself that question. Well, um, dreams are I mean, some dreams are just they you know whatever. But a lot of dreams are the narrative of you, your fears, your successes, your failures, your hopes, your dreams, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so in a way, they are the story. Of you, you know, if you fear something, you're probably going to encounter it in your dreams. Um, and I know for me, that's something that I've always experienced in my life. Um, and I love the connection between dreams and stories. Uh, and actually, uh, the movie Inception, just as a shout out, it ta- that's what it's about. It tackles that very same thing. So dreams and stories are very connected to each other. Funny you bring that up. I, I brought that up before you hopped on the call. Um, it speaks to like 
there's a scene in Inception I kept thinking of during this prologue, which was um, there's, there's like a village or something in Inception where people uh, deliberately try to lucid dream to escape reality, and it, and it speaks to this. It also speaks to a Batman animated series episode with the Mad Hatter, where he tries to basically put uh, you know Batman in a permanent dream so he could have everything he ever wanted, and it's, it speaks to this oh, yeah. harsh contrast between the pleasant, you know conjuring of your own reality so that everything feels good and everything is satisfying versus the harsh harshness of reality which do you choose things like that kale did you have any sort of conception about it no <laughs> what's <All> the right. question <laughs> what is the connection between dreams and stories no, I like what everybody else has said. You guys are doing a great job. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Thanks for uh, uh, bearing, bearing it, uh, Kale. So the the I, I, we we've mentioned uh, Nada, who was the the lover of Dream, who she, you know she sort of scorned, and uh, this is where she sort of makes her her first appearance and contextualizes the issue prior when we are in hell and and she's damned there. I think it it, it adds a layer to one what happens in that issue because that issue was sort of about change he still feels the same way about her but i think based off what we see in this story which happened apparently like you know eons ago it 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 also shows us that he has the capacity to change that the endless are not necessarily endless and i think that sort of plays into uh the the subsequent doll's house story because it deals with desires and how desires sort of shape who we are and, and what we want in life. And uh, I think that that was probably the, the introduction of desire, the sister of, well, the sister brother of dream and despair. Also the being the sister of uh, dream, that introduction, the, and, and the concepts behind them, what, what were your like perceptions and, and thoughts around us being introduced to those concepts. Uh, I was a little, I was a little thrown at first. Um, I wasn't really sure what the point was. Um, it took a little while for uh, all, all that, I guess, to really land anywhere specific with me. Um, I think it's. I thought it was interesting that desire was personified. Uh, in the way that uh, that it was, um, but I also felt like like those earlier pages um, in issue ten. Yep, I, I wasn't I, I wasn't following. I wasn't really following. Did it Did it connect towards the end at all? Like, well, yeah. like once? Okay, okay yeah. Um, and then for any listener who's interested, the they touch upon some of the other. So there are seven endless. There's destiny, dream, desire, death, despair, delirium, and then there is one that will go unnamed for now because it's an integral part of the story later on. So for anybody who's interested, I think that that uh, sibling is introduced, or I want to say like in volume five or six or something, and plays a huge part of the story. Uh, I, I think there's a really good payoff for anybody who follows through to this series. And I definitely recommend you guys to, to continue to do so. But just for any context there for any other listeners. Good to know. The uh, Yeah. What I, what I liked about 10 was I liked how it tied us back to 
issue one. Yep. Again, with the reintroduction of um, Unity. Unity, yes. Thank you, Kel. And uh, and six with twenty four hours. Oh right, right, right. Yeah, because um, there was the one the, girl mm-hmm. in the diner who was her best friend. Yeah. yeah. As well. Um, oh what? Yeah. Yeah. Rose and yeah. the girl with like the the jean jacket. They were like best the punk friends. girl who had like the oh, thing. Yeah. yeah. They were more than best friends, I thought. No, it, that was in her. House. That was in her. No, no, no. She literally calls her best friend and says that she was having trouble with her girlfriend. Right. And remember, oh, that's right. she calls someone yeah, in the yeah, diner. Yeah. She actually calls... Um, Rose. Rose. That's okay. that's what she says. She's like, oh, she called me that day and whatever. And right. then she apparently died or was murdered. Um, so I, I, I really liked how they tied those characters back in in that way. Because I think, again, it, it, go, it goes to how gaming keeps going back to that well of establishing minor characters that might not matter in the grand scheme of things, but it, it gives you like, you know, oh, like actions have echoes, right? And people have these connections. And it's interesting to see how, you know, Dream being captured in, you know, whatever, whatever year it was, 1940 or whatever it was. Um, 16. Or 19, 16. 16, thank you. Um, how that, echoes through to what's happening now with unity and rose and you know and even the events in the diner and all that stuff right it's 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 ripples uh in a pond right i want to i want to point out uh just you know I, I always love to point out like pages that really effectively use the the medium or just do things that are really smart and uh it's not it's not you know anything crazy but if you go to page 20 in this issue where Rose is talking to the uh, the three sisters. Um, the way that the the what is on the page guides your eyes. Typically, you read from left to right in a comic. This wants you to read from left straight down, right straight, or middle straight down, and right straight down. And the way it uses the owl and then the witch's hat co- almost connected to the owl to bring you down. And then the witch's dialogue right sitting right over the, the head of the cat to drag you even further down and then the eyes in the middle row like super super effective that's everyone at work constructing a page that is very very good fuck i didn't even clock that the first time because it's so good like i didn't even think about the fact that it was abnormal until you pointed that out uh, I, it kind of goes um it, it's taken for granted but i think the hardest thing in crafting a comic book is utilizing your space and using yeah. pages. This and, and when we read Swamp Thing, they both really know how to utilize a page to its to its maximum potential. Yeah. And to do something like creative in certain ways, because there's like issue seven is the one where like almost all the gutters are black. And the way that like that affects how you feel about the space. You know, and then like Phil, you called out there's the point later where it's like all white then all of a sudden and then all of a sudden the dreamscape feels so big because every other panel has felt tiny and constricted. On on the art, uh, we actually got a, a question about it and uh, I wanted to bring it up because for me, I think the art in the first sort of arc is much looser and not as joined together. It's one of my biggest criticisms compared to what we see here in uh, uh, a doll's house and specifically uh, Sultan of Swing asks obviously Gaiman is timeless but how do you feel the art has held up 
Is it a product of its time, of the time, or something that still works as well as today? And I think on my reread, I mentioned at the top, you know, there was something about it that didn't quite land for me the same way. It didn't really evoke the same sort of feelings. And I think largely that came from the art and how slightly disparate it was. There's a, a number of creators who came off the book at a certain point, And then Mike, uh, what's his name? Mike Drinberg, he comes off and Malcolm Jones becomes the main, or rather Sam Keith comes off the book known for his uh, Mac series. Then Mike Drinberg becomes the main penciler and then Malcolm Jones becomes the main inker. And then the book starts to feel a little bit more cohesive. This is after issue five. Uh, so how did you guys feel about the art? Does it stand up? It, was it something that you guys felt from arc to arc differed enough that it, it affected you? So I, I try not to judge too harshly things that are old because there will always be something that feels old. But They just didn't know any better back then, you know? Yeah, you know? <laughs> um, and, whoa, whoa, and- wait a minute. You're going to – Kale's from 88, right? I'm 89. No, Kale is 88. <laughs> uh, I'm 89, baby. So, you know, when we read a book with like a lot of text, but it's from this time, I try not to really ding it for that because that's just what they did. Uh, it's annoying, but it is what it is. That's That was the style. This book obviously looks like it's from when it's from. It looks like a late 80s, 90s comic book. This is one of the times where I think that that is actually to its benefit and not its detriment because there is a feeling that that period of time evokes for me that only these kinds of things can make me feel. And when it's done well, it it's it it's a when it's done well, it's a it's a time machine and books don't look like this anymore. There are some people who would say that they're happy for that. But I would say um, that we need books that look like this to get to where we are now. But in its own right, this is brilliant stuff. I don't know what version of this you guys have and how it depicts this. But it's not as good as yours, I promise. Well, <laughs> be, be that as it may, ten, page 10 to uh, to uh, 14 of this of this issue are on their side. And yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Like, that's so gorgeous. And are there books that do that now that look better than this? Yeah, but this this what this wasn't from now. This is from back then. So you have to appreciate it for what it was. And I, I think it's brilliant. I don't think it's a fair criticism to judge art like that. It it looks the way it looks that makes sense and i think it looks great is it in some ways there's like a there is a bit of like uh, a moving to center in art in the last 10 years like things have to look like a models and stuff have to look a certain way uh yeah and this doesn't conform to that and it, it reflects as the piece of art that it is uh i have no huge criticism of the art at all in this, even though there's other like different people on it. It 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 looks beautiful. To uh to answer Snake's question like directly. It's both. Um it's a product of its yes, time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. It, it is both a product of its time and it holds up. I think that personally, I, this is my favorite era of comics. And I like. I think that there are so many modern books that, to Sean's point, have uh, iterated and improved and learned lessons from these books that came before. But like, I, I think that there's like, there's stuff here that's just special, you know, and it, you don't get books that feel like this anymore. Um, you don't? And, and what, what was that, Sean? You don't? You don't get books that feel like this anymore? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm confused. I'm just, I'm what did I say? You, you That's what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I don't think you get books that feel like this anymore. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I feel that way. <laughs> um, and and I, I remember us expressing a similar thing when we read Swamp Thing and we talked about how there had been the version that was recolored and and I don't think that that's as good. Um, so sure, like may, maybe to some modern readers this you'll look at this and think that it's dated. Um, but but it's a style and and I think it's a it's a style that speaks to me a lot. And I think that what Marco said about um the style kind of coalescing after a while. I think that's true. I think particularly the the first issue or two, maybe um, there are there are parts that like just feel off. I guess, but I think once it finds its rhythm, it's like a plus stuff. Not everything a needs to look the same, or b needs to look a certain way. And what really I think speaks to the quality of the art in this is how methodically structured it is. Panelly, like Sean pointed out, pages 10 and 11, issue 10. And, and these are things that are, are consistent in all the issues we've read, all 16 issues. Um, this, it's a mastercraft at work. If anything, there are things in this book that I would like to see more often in comics. I uh so I shared a, an image with two images of this book compared to its original coloring. So for context, and I'm not sure if the absolute edition has this, Sean, wow. but this is technically the recolored version. So um the artist, what's his name? Uh Daniel Vazzo, he actually is a the person who recolored for this series moving uh moving forward uh in all of its printings. So, um, so the second printing they did of it, they recolored it. So the yeah, sub- subsequent printings in trade, as well as I think any digital edition you get of it, is all going to be in this recolored version by Vatsa. Interesting. Fuck. So I think Not- I think to answer for for me to answer, and, and sorry, I kind of feel like I mentioned all of this, but like to to answer, um, <laughs> Sultan, I think it. I agree that it is both a product of its time. And I know we had sort of, as Pete mentioned, we had this discussion about the recoloring and we've had a topic about it as well uh, on on the main show that you guys can go find. But I think there are things that get carried over that don't always get carried over. And for me, the biggest criticism, my, my biggest criticism is more so on like the consistency of like how the art sort of feels disparate in the beginning and then gets tighter in, towards the the latter half of the first arc and then how this all feels sort of contained. But I do think that um, for me, some of the the coloration that is in here 
is a, a miss on my end because I much I would much rather have experienced it in in that sort of brighter, more pulpy horror uh, style than this. That said, this could be a lot worse. This recolor that 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 is a good point. It, it could be much worse, and and I don't know that because we've I experienced- could have done the recolorings. <laughs> And I don't know that because we've experienced it as a recolored, it, it sort of paints that perspective. But just uh, just throwing that out there as well. Gaiman brings up in I I, I think it's that uh, the and the in his author's note at the end of the first volume that um, the original artist. Who's it? is it? Sam Keith, you said uh, the original penciler. Yes, sorry. yes. Uh, he left because if he said it felt like uh, playing in the Beatles, but belonging to the Rolling Stones or something. Yeah, like a playing for the wrong band. Yep. Okay. And it 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 really feels like that uh, because like Gaiman points out that. You know, he was trying different things for for each issue, especially the first volume. Like the first one, Pete mentioned is a, uh, uh, a old British classics or whatever, and then there are there's an issue that's uh, oh, uh, an homage to old EC horror comics, and I think each one you can really feel they're trying something different, but it it, it doesn't quite click until that switch happens, and then it's like, oh, this is what this is. This is how it's supposed to look. Yeah, yeah. And, and good. I I actually really appreciated the the different ways that the book looks. I loved the early issues. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, yeah, I, I thought they looked great. I, I I thought the way that the the way that the people were drawn. It really gave me a grit and grimy feel. It added like a a dirtiness to everything that was happening, which I think goes hand in hand and works really well with horror that has a magical supernatural uh, element to it. Yeah, but that's to take so, nothing away from what comes later because it's all really great. I I will say what I see in the second volume here is maybe more representative of images I've seen more often. You know, like future like what i've seen of sandman just in you know cursory yeah. scrollings or whatever like that looks more familiar and just my understanding but yeah like sean i love the stuff in the early issues really gothic like I, I feel like specifically dream's character design is i think the thing that comes together the most in in the, the later issues that we read um and we talked about like going off off model or whatever. Like I feel like they get down the look a little bit more because like in the first, like he's got like the the cape with the flames and everything, and like the like he's a little chunkier, you know. Like he like he's got like he looks a little bit more like um just like a goth dude in like a trench coat, and I feel like <laughs> the vibe of of him uh, as it progresses feels more and more mystical to me. I guess. Mm. As he becomes like a little bit more shapeless, and he becomes more kind of like, you know, he feels more like a shadow. I guess. I think he he be, at a certain point he becomes more vis- visibly like tangible, and I think it that that's more consistent throughout each of the the following issues. Um, so so jumping right back into into like the doll's house and stuff. So so Rose Walker, we sort of we, we touched upon her being 
being met with the the three witches, how she sort of starts to play a larger role that we don't yet know in uh, in the world of the dreaming and something that Sandman has to deal with. But I think as she she ties back into as Pete mentioned, Unity Kincaid was one of the people in the first issue was fall had fallen into this endless sleep, and her story follows. You know, she doesn't know where she fits in. She's trying to sort of become her own. And she is the heir to this fortune that Unity has. She decides that she wants to go find Jed with this newfound money and access. And Jed being her brother who had uh, disappeared. And so she goes, she does that, and she ends up in uh, Florida. And there she meets up with the, the sort of pieces of the dollhouse uh, Hal Carter, who's the landlord, who at night is a, um, a, drag a, a drag performer named Dolly, to a couple called Barbie and Ken, uh, I believe a, ma- a married couple, which is pretty on the nose, and then Zelda and Chantel, and this is sort of the the place that she lives with one other person, Gilbert, namely, who becomes another character later, uh, living above them. Uh, I think for for me, what's interesting is because we're dealing with these larger concepts these characters provide context into what uh, i thought the dollhouse arc sort of played into and what it sort of meant and and because it opens up with desire it feels like a lot of their interactions are sort of driven by that and they are rather than individual actors they're sort of like the playthings for these gods and the endless who are sort of toying with reality because later we find out that um, Desire had been toying with the creation of a dream vortex, which is a piece of the dreaming that sort of comes alive and can can consume uh, worlds. And they don't they don't actively participate. They're just sort of the participants to these machinations. Um, I, for one, thoroughly enjoyed like that sort of conception as to like why they were placed in this house. Um, I was just curious, like of, of these characters, what sort of stood out to you guys? Uh, the thing that I think stood out the most to me about them was how I think, um, with Rose being our POV character, she kind of comes into the house and you kind of get this sense that it's like oh it's like a house of freaks like all these people are very weird you know like and um even like barbie and ken who are like like they're normal to the point of being strange right um and i dig how over time like they i feel like they become increasingly normalized and like there's this kind of showing that like the a lot of the people in the outside world are are scary or fucked up or or capable of some really awful things and it's all these people who you who you initially look at as like freaks or these dregs of society or whatever um who are the ones that show the most humanity well, that reminds me of um the the way you just described that reminds me of uh the creator of the Adams family created it to be like uh like his version of the the modern family and like a good representation of a family there's all weird in the way 
Sorry? I said, but they're just all a little weird. They're all just a little weird, but they all love and support each other. And right. being in that house and being part of that family, arguably, is better than being part of the outside world, which does none of those things. Yeah, and scorns them, looks at them as the other, right? Mm-hmm. The first thing I, I thought of is how, with death, when we're introduced to death, death is a very, like, a thoughtful, kind of kind yeah. concept. But when we were introduced to desire, there's a lot of manipulation and negative emotions associated with it, and I thought that was mm-hmm. really interesting. Uh, and obviously we know like the side effects and the consequences of, of strongly desiring anything. There's a lot of negative side effects. So Rose is really important because we need a, a, a an actual POV character that can ground us into what is happening right on a greater stage here. And in this kind of story arc, it kind of really starts feeling more like a, a ongoing comic book series, if that makes sense, because it's starting to like play in long, longer narrative stories and stuff. Uh, and like characters are are playing out in a longer narrative way. Like characters from issue one are now playing a larger role in these next six issues or whatever. This was probably the only part of the book where I was like genuinely confused and also kind of annoyed because I didn't I didn't feel like any of the stuff that was going on, at least for me, was uh, explained very well. Mm. Um. Uh, what were their names? Glob, Blob, um, uh, Glob, Glob and Brute, Glob and Brute. Uh, I didn't really understand how they did what they did, um, how they were able to set up shop, you know, and where these other two came from, uh, you know, the the way in which all of that happened, what was wrong with Hippolyta. Like, I had so many questions. And maybe for others it was different, but for me, I didn't feel like those were really answered. Um, it also felt like I was supposed to think that what was happening to Jed was caused by the manipulations of either Desire or the other two goons, but I don't think that's actually what was happening either, so I'm not really sure what he had to do with anything. There was a lot of stuff. That, yeah, I... um. I, I felt similarly, not to the point where it like took me out, but it felt more like this feels like a means to an end to get Dream connected to these characters, you know? It's like, oh, his goons are here, so that's why he shows up. And then that that in turn sets the rest of everything in motion. Yeah, so um, essentially the, these are uh, like other three concepts, Glob and Brute. It's not necessarily explained in this book, but actually there's a, a couple of tie-ins, not tie-ins necessarily, but like there, there's other history because what Gaiman does is pull these characters back out from continuity and, and he sort of manipulates and plays with them. So Hector Hall specifically is the Sandman in Infinity Inc. And at that point he had, you know, sort of died as the Silver Scarab. And as as the Silver Scarab, he was um, some old Silver Age DC characters. Yeah, he's 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 the son of both uh, of the Golden Age Hawkgirl and Hawkman. And what uh, he's cursed to become a vessel for the Silver Scarab, who takes over his body, and his soul is thrown asunder to the Dreaming, and that's where he resides. But in Infinity Inc., he becomes 
the embodiment called Sandman, who is able to visit Lita, Hippolyta being the daughter of Golden Age Wonder Woman and um, Steve Trevor. And she, uh, uh, he visits her for like one hour a day only. Like that's his, his limit per whatever, you know, rules that the writers had set up. And so he recontextualizes that and he basically has Glob and Brute take Hector Hall as a hero within this corner of the dreaming that they've closed off from the rest of the dreaming in order for them to eventually take over the dreaming for themselves and sort of become like the kings of of that realm so this this obviously isn't explained this is like additional context that you sort of have to know um but just for for context for for listeners and 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 for you guys too like this is sort of like the 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 ideas behind it and where gaming gets it from Hmm. yeah that helps and uh i definitely think that should have either been here or not used because without you telling me that i never ever would have known that yeah, yeah yeah and it's definitely not explained and uh, what what i think more so than anything he tries to do is just get across the idea of like escapism via dreams um and uh, like with with the dreaming being stuck inside of jed who is rose's brother's head that is what um i think that's like the biggest idea that he tries to get off on this one uh i will i wonder if readers then would have known like serious because i think infinity inc went for a long time uh so i i, I wonder if uh readers back then you know if he would if hector hall would have been like etrigan maybe it, yeah it would have maybe like recently ended because according to wikipedia the publication date was 84 to 88 so it would have been within the past year or so. So it might have been like recent yeah. memory. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. that that probably makes sense then, right? If it's like a contemporary book. But the... So Jed is... He is stuck inside of this house. He is in a abuse... He's in an abusive home because the his you know caretakers, the guardians, essentially just get him for the check and he is allowed to live in their basement. I think this is where the like real life horrors start to spill into the book outside of like because we you know we had had dr d we had had uh him going to hell but now it's a much more grounded into like i don't want to say street level but it's grounded into like more of the day-to-day for for um for like humans and uh jed's story is in particular tragic and I wanted to to know like what you guys sort of felt about his essentially his his, his predicament. Sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't know that there's much else to say about it than that. It's horrible. Um, it's one of many tragedies in this book. I think for. Uh, and 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 Kale, I I know you're a big J, JSA guy. I I was curious what you thought of Hector Hall's introduction because I, I I know you're you're a fan of that book, and I, I don't know if that like did that pop for you or anything. Well, uh, so earlier I made the reference to Wesley Dodds, who appears in the um the first issue. He's the ori- the original sandman from from the 50s in the jsa and at the time he uh, at this very specific time there was also another vertigo series 
uh, called uh, Sandman Mystery Theater, which is a uh, a very horror noir book uh, that is tremendous. Yeah. By the way, some someday we might get to it. I it's one of my favorites. Matt Wagner. Um. Yeah. Yep. Um. For but for me for this the only relation to the JSA Sandman was that classic, uh gold and red costume and really i just took that because i didn't know the history you laid out i really just took that as a a sort of um um like an homage well i guess a a a, a sort of bait and switch to the sandman we're dealing with uh sure. morpheus you know if if the his whole if Morpheus's whole deal is he's the Sandman, and in popular knowledge, there's a, uh, another hero called the Sandman. Well, then Jed's just going to dream about this guy being the Sandman instead of Morpheus, and we won't give him the the name. So it was really just like Hector Hall for me was a, a different version of Morpheus. Got it. If that makes sense. Yeah. I didn't uh, think about it that way. Or or thought he was anyway. Right, right. Like right that embodiment. It's funny when right. you think back to like the Golden Age uh, representation, Sandman that's portrayed in issue 11, uh, it makes it seem almost more dreamlike because it's like it harkens back to the more cartoonish era of comics, if you will. Right. Little Nemo is that reference. Little Nemo in Slumberland. Oh, yeah. Totally. I went to comic book school. <laughs> the 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 panels have numbers only when Jed dreams, and I thought that was an interesting uh, addition. I don't know that it. I, I was curious as to what you guys made out of that because I don't necessarily know. It's it's oh, it's that's, how comics were in nineteen ten. Really? Oh, okay. In, with Little Nemo, yeah. It's it's a it's a direct reference to Little Nemo. This is a direct homage to Little that's Nemo really in cool. Silverland. Right, look at your degree meaning something. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I can maybe I'll quit wiping my ass with it. <laughs> uh, ultimate, ultimately, a dream comes in, destroys sort of the illusion that Glob and Brute have built, and uh, we Jed is saved, quote unquote, by the Corinthian, who's another character who we get introduced to, uh, and Hippolyta sort of realizes that the person that she had been living with all these years inside of Jed's head is no longer there. And we also get a tease to something that happens even later in Sandman about her child and how uh, at, at some point Dream will return for what is his because it was con- it was born, or it wasn't born, but it was uh, conceived in Dream. And this is another reference to the Infinity Inc. stuff. The Corinthian, same, bro, the same. Uh, the Corinthian in particular, I thought was really cool because it, juxt- it another juxtaposition, nightmares with real life nightmares in one of the subsequent issues. Uh, I'm going to come back to Men of Good Fortune with Hob, but it, it, it gives us that comparison piece of like, what is a nightmare from a dream perspective? And then in real life in the serial convention, how do we experience those uh, 
those real life nightmares. This was one of the issues that I remember reading that tr- like truly frightened me for whatever reason. Uh, cause it's awful. <laughs> like I'm fucking twenty. It didn't. It didn't scare me. But like I, you know, I'm 27 years old. When I was reading this, I felt sick to my stomach. The entire oh. issue. I was like, this listen, is- I'm I'm 31. You get over it. <laughs> All right, I'll try it again when I'm 30. Um, but yeah, I mean, just like I think it's how casual it is you know like that it, it, it's like especially for us who like go to conventions like how mundane the idea of going to a convention is and that they're just like having these very like frank like normal quote-unquote conversations about you know just the the sickest shit imaginable it, it makes your skin crawl yeah it's pretty bad <laughs> yep all right that's all there is to say about that it's it's real effective that <laughs> i just taking the words right out of your fucking mouth <laughs> i at some point reading it i was like you know what i wonder how real this is i was thinking you, that too. i was like i wonder yeah, if stuff like you this hope like not <laughs> you hope not but yeah. you also have to think this is probably real well you think about how much easier it used to be to get away with shit like true this. You know, like in the in the eighties, like no less, right? It's like it's pretty high speed internet, baby. Like, <laughs> <laughs> load, yeah, up your, guys, load up your nearest murder. I, I'm gonna go with a no on the idea that there was ever a convention <laughs> no. for serial killers. <laughs> no, you're wrong. Oh. This is real, Sean. This is real life shit. Okay. The Zodiac killer <laughs> sent mail. He can send mail to other murders. <laughs> there's there's conventions for everything these days, I guess. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Uh, jumping back to Hob Go- Hob Gadlink in Men of Good Fortune. I thought this was one of the, the most inventive issues of the the run because it plays with the concept of endless again and uh death and how in particular if you think something, is that enough power to make it reality? Like at what point does your conception of what is make it so? I liked that in uh, juxtaposition to the idea that like dreams are real. Yes. Too right that it's they're they're not not real. It's just that the way you experience them is in a way that can't like hurt your physical form necessarily. Like usually, right? Um, and I I don't know I, this I thought was the best issue in the series for me of what we read. Really? And yeah, I enjoyed this one the most anyway. Um, just because I I don't know, like I I like bottles like I, I like stuff that's just like it's these two guys just having a conversation and that the meaning of it develops over time you know and like seeing how his life kind of ebbs and flows i i thought um you know it, it spoke to something that sean said earlier like the most precious thing to humans is life and is the the opportunity of of things getting better and, um, you know, he has this point where it's like he he literally says he's like, I, you know, I've hated every second of the last like 70 years or something like that. And he's like, so then are you ready to die? No, not at all. Are you kidding me? Still better than rotten in the ground. Um, which I, I don't know, like there's something about I, if it's like oddly inspiring, you know, that like he he's as down and out as you can be ostensibly, right? Like he loses his fortune. His wife dies in childbirth and his kid gets killed at like 20 years old or whatever. And he'd still rather keep going. 
Yeah, it, it's a pretty it's a pretty powerful issue for a lot of different reasons, and I think it's a microcosm of a lot of the the concepts that Neil Gaiman is is playing with. Um, you know, you, uh, this issue inspired me to think about a lot of stuff. So it inspired me to think about um, the stuff that was going on with Doctor D and how he was. Uh, playing at godliness with this item that he had that didn't belong to him, but it destroyed his mind as a result. Mm. Here is a human, right, for whom the the concept of eternal life shouldn't even exist. He shouldn't even be able to believe that that could be real. And yet he does anyways. He defies his humanity. And that defying of his humanity allows him to be endless or similar to uh, Sandman in that way. And I love how in the end they're friends and this this person's life almost becomes a life that matters to someone who we've seen showcased that life really doesn't matter to him. The lives of, of regular people. And that's not the case with this guy. And I love that uh, element of this story. What what frustrated me about this story is its placement in this volume. Sure. It, it was a great story, but I think I would have preferred it maybe at the end of it or I was 12 maybe and 13 the flipped. Yeah, because like it gr- it for me it ground the the doll's house narrative to a halt and then like by the end of it i was waiting for the payoff uh that just never came um so that was very frustrating yeah um i i also wanted to wanted to comment on the the different lives that hob leads throughout um, obviously, at some point, he is a slave owner, and um, you know I'm sure that that a lot of people look at that and they go, "Oh my God, you know that's so terrible." He's almost beyond that, and it and again, it's a it's a juxtaposition between himself and Sandman. For 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 Sandman, it was nothing to uh, to subject this woman that he loves to to hell forever. Uh, for Sandman, it wasn't important to walk in to the diner before all those people died. And he certainly doesn't mourn their losses. He doesn't care. It is what it is. He's been alive a long time. A lot of people have died and will continue to die. For this guy, it's kind of similar. He's not He's not above humanity. He's not above the desire for money. He's not above the desire, lust or or whatever. He's a human. And he was a slave owner, and he lives long enough to realize, eh, that wasn't so great what I did. Um, but he did other things that were bad before that. He'll do things after that that are bad. He's going to live a really, really long time. And we get a look into Sandman a little bit more through the lens of this person because he is a human, an actual human. And you see how him and Sandman are not that far apart. The only thing Sandman doesn't agree with is the fact that he's traded in slaves. 
Thank God, right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that would be disappointing to know that dream <laughs> is pro-slavery. I'm, I'm like low-key surprised that he th- thought about it that much, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> to be honest with you. Um, I, I guess when you're endless, though, you can you have the, the time to sit around and go, hey, that's pretty fucked up. That's not good. <laughs> I, I also really like this issue as a, a showcase for the art team, like getting them getting to redesign dream like over the you know millennias or whatever um as well as like the bar and and that kind of stuff i thought was like a really fun Mm -hmm. um artistic diversion because like it's so funny to just see him because like when i when you first see him right like my impression was that that's just how he looks not that like he's intentionally dressing like a goth (laughs) And then, like, it's very clear that he is because he had a different style in all these other decades or, you know, I don't know what the word is for every hundred years. Century. Century. Thank you. Um, and that I got a kick out of that for some reason. I was like, I like that he's like he, he likes to keep up with the styles, you know, it's, it's interesting that the life of a man who can who chooses not to die is juxtaposed so that that kind of that, that kind of is an experiment for death, even though he is meeting with dream that's juxtaposed with Shakespeare who, uh, is given the opportunity to inspire dreams. Yes. That in particular also pays off in the next volume of this, which is really interesting. Sort of. I continued on with that. It sort well, of does. I mean, it's a good idea. It's, it's don't, executed. Hey, we can put it that way. That's a conversation. Uh, I'm not, so uh i i think to to sean to your point on like uh how he you know can how dream considers slavery i think regardless of the what hob might be willing to do i think there's a there's an understanding about fairness which doesn't necessarily equate to justice on the part of dream where you need you 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 should uh, especially on on the concept where he he mentions like taking pride in a certain action versus committing to doing the action is the detrimental part. Uh, not uh, obviously the action inherent is in itself bad, but the reaction and therein the not joy, but the the willingness to be the willingness to maybe be. Um, uh supporting of a certain piece of it is an issue regardless of whether or not he might agree because uh, like like hob goes you know like like whatever it's the work that i do and that's how he conceptualizes of it but dream comes in and he's like well you're taking pride in it and that therein is the issue because you have to consider the fairness outside of the justice of it because those are two concepts that are different and not 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 necessarily mutually inclusive. I love that you said that because what I was gonna say uh, is how that allows you to look again at some of the other events in the series, and you understand the way that Sandman thinks about these things. It's not important for him to kill Doctor D. That doesn't matter, and that's not gonna serve anything in real life. If someone wrongs you. And or like, let's say someone kills you and then you you get revenge 
by your fan by the by that person getting the death penalty. Did it avenge your death? No. Mm-hmm. Um, did it satisfy any actual law of nature? No. It's it, it's going to satisfy the people who mourned you, but that's it, and that's really not worth that much. And it's better to say because Sandman is a is a sympathetic person. Notice. He takes, he has some level of sympathy for Dr. D, but also for, um, uh, Hippolyta. He says, uh, she tries to attack him and he's like, well, you know, you're grieving. So that affected your judgment. I'm not going to react yep. to that. Yep. That, that because he has a higher sense of, of, of these things. He's not going to respond to a human being trying to attack him out of grief. He gets it. He's not going to respond to the fact that Dr. D was working through his grief by killing other people. He gets it. It's not right or wrong. It is what it is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. How do you th- how do you think that ties back to what was issue two with Constantine? Or was it three or whatever? There's issue with Constantine, right? And there's the whole thing of like his former lover has been taking the dust like a, a drug basically and like uh, Dream is gonna like leave her there to die and suffer, and it's not until Constantine appeals to him that he's like, okay, like, fine, I'll I'll put her out of her misery and give her like a peaceful death. Um, how do you think that factors into that point you just made? If I had to, well, I don't know what was in Gaiman's mind, but in my mind, she chose that. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Like, like I. I okay. She chose. Yeah. She chose to to use do that to her body. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Okay. And and I think whereas. I, Dr. D's mother, you know, that was out of his hands. And in this case with Hippolyta, she was a pawn. Right. And and I think to your point, to your, your question, Pete, he, the, the reason that he was going to let her die in that state was because to what we, we've mentioned in the past, like that death isn't, it's not meaningless, but the, the, the way you go about it, is meaningless like the, the way that you die ultimately she's gonna die either right. way right so what does it matter if it's peaceful or, or not right and it's not it that makes it's, sense it's yeah. not until constantine sympathizes with him and 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 tells him that you know she is a person of value to him that there is some sort of connection there that he's like fine yeah and i guess that that plays into something that i guess we've talked about here too where like he does have this like broader sense of justice that's just different than ours and like Constantine did him a solid, right? Right. So, like, it's the least he could do to return the favor. Yep. Yep. Exactly. The wrapping up with the last two issues, the dream vortex that is Rose is revealed. And uh, I was curious because I think there's, I personally subscribe to the belief that there is some sort of semblance of a consciousness that is accessible. And I, that that is accessible within a sort of controlled environment. Um, I uh, personally, I do meditation, and so I, I know that, for example, in in this issue, there are dreams that start to spill into other dreams. And for me, it was really interesting to be able to examine um, the desires within the dreams because, again, these are sort of like the machinations of of desire to some extent, but also the way that they start to bleed into each other and how from a consciousness perspective as well as from a shared knowledge perspective these things like mix and intertwine and how much of what i talk to you about affects your dreams and if you dream of me and i dream of you 
what is what does that mean in in our like ethereal connection? So what does it mean when you, you dream about me? Ooh, baby, you don't want to know. <laughs> so you're, you're saying you believe in I could, a shared I could consciousness? Well, in in that because uh, we've interacted so much, right? Like you might have a dream about me, but that is your personal experience up to an extent, right? You, I might be personified a certain way. I might do something a certain way in that dream. Does that, how, how accurate of a representation might that be to say that maybe that, that is me? I see what you're saying. So you're, you're, you're talking about like how perception, like I guess, or like your cognition of things, like how that impacts reality. Right. Yeah. Well, like it's like how in anything, uh, perception can be reality. Uh, the way Sean sees me as a person can be different from how Marco sees me as a person, which can be different how from how Marco dreams of me as a person. <laughs> but nevertheless, every every perception of that could be true in a sense, right? They're also or it's at least true to that person. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right totally. Um, and I think particularly when you talk about it through the context of the dreamscape. And the fact that that is a, a place that is real, that becomes a more interesting question. What is the question? The question well, is a superhero, uh, DC Comics. Uh... <laughs> the question, the question is, uh, is the is this shared well i guess p kind of mentioned it is the shared consciousness is that like the does that count as a shared consciousness if you have different perceptions of different people hmm. because because you know we can think one way about somebody but does the that sum total mean that maybe there is some sort of shared consciousness between us because of that like right like at some point we start to understand each other's pauses um in in music um you know the the band fits like a tight groove and you get to feel and anticipate certain things is it because we understand each other so well or is it because there's at some point uh in the in the doing that you you are able to sort of uh, share a, a certain thought sorry are you saying we don't understand each other well since we don't understand each other's pauses? Well, I guess we, we, we don't understand each other well because when I dream of you, you're even more hairy. Oh, so, oh, oh boy. <laughs> okay. First of all, I think it's pretty clear based on this podcast that we do not understand each other well um, <laughs> because uh, I get interrupted constantly. But that aside, uh, I think this is a question for the metaphysics pals. Um, Ugh. <laughs> what? When does well, that we've, got the, we've got the religion pal starting up here in about 20 minutes so I'm going to need to wrap this <laughs> that's up that's a big question two hours into a book club <laughs> um, definitely I, I tie it into the tie it into the to the, uh, to the narrative here well I mean in the narrative there uh, um, Rose is the center of the vortex she gets uh, she starts to intercept and intertwine everybody's dreams and their perceptions of each other start to uh, their personal perceptions of themselves start to invade and bleed into the other characters dreams until there's like this one grand sum total of a dream that is collectively made up of individual parts and 
um, that ties into, well, if my perception of what I think I am is communicated to you, does that then count as a shared consciousness because we can conceptualize of each other in a, in the same way because I've communicated myself effectively in in the case of the book um you're actually experiencing those um those things concurrently but um I guess to the meta- metaphysical point I I feel like that's illustrated really well at the end of issue 14 where dream decides that the the way to punish the the attendees of the serial convention is to make their perceptions of themselves align with reality mm. with who they really are um i like that and and how that shakes them i think that speaks to the this this very heady concept that you're you're introducing into this um into this conversation but i think it is there in the text right and how that uh i don't know i guess like that there is like a true perception of us but that our own perception and others' perception of us is all kind of like, are all competing, I guess. I also think it, along that same point, I think some, um, uh, Gilbert turns into, what is is it the field of dreams or the field Fiddler's of- Fiddler's green. Oh, maybe, okay. <laughs> but it basically he's the, he's the landscape of dreams yes. roughly. Yeah. I think that speaks more toward something of what could be considered like a, a shared consciousness in that, you know, when you dream, you do have a landscape one way or the other. Is that all one place? Is that all, you know, Interesting. and then, you know, and then you can sort of, because then I think you have to battle perceptions and, and truth and fact and, you know, and that all can be warped, but there's always a landscape. The scene is always set. In whatever fashion. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I think uh I think it's 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 only possible to have um a conversation about the true self from the perspective of objective reality. And someone like Dream or any of these concepts who exist outside of reality, who can see beyond um, their nose, I guess, uh, and not all of them can, can discuss what is true. But what is true of me, who I am, is is, is almost certainly not going to line up with who you think I am. And the best parts of me will never be fully clear to you. And the worst parts of me are not representative of the whole of who I am. But you can judge me by either one. And that's kind of the thing about life, right? Is everything is is based on your own perspective. So because of that inability for our versions of each other to line up accurately, I don't know that we could share a space in which we are truly ourselves. Because who you are inherently is defined by how you see yourself, but also how people see you, and vice versa. That um that ties into something that I, I thought was a really like a character who we haven't really gotten to talk about, um, and I wanted to bring up just for like the anecdotal conversation, but it actually works with this where um Matt, who's uh Dreams Raven, yeah. which is the Matt we know from Swamp yeah. Thing, actually. Um and I uh-huh. Yeah, I was going to see ask if you guys clocked that. Um 
which a I thought that was a really cool cameo, but I I like him as a device because he is a human who is now uh, metamorphosizing into something else, and I think like his commentary on the dreamscape and what it means to be a dream to him um, helped me wrap my head around some of these ideas in a way that made them feel a little bit more tangible. Uh. In, in I guess in in what like because he has he has transitioned from living to the physical plane to the incorporeal gotcha. plane, okay. you know, like his, his perception, right, right? Yeah, like his 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 perception of that is more aligned to what our perception of it would be, rather than dream or or uh, the green or you know Gilbert, um, who are who are these other these beings that come from that place and have a, a far more like fundamental connection to it. Right. Like his perception of that reality is um, very, very much like ours as a reader. Gotcha. Huh? Okay. Um, I'm satiated. Uh, so thank you. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the book wraps up where after the vortex, that Rose is a part of Unity actually comes because she is in the the process of um I guess slowly dying and she comes in and, and takes the place of Rose as a sacrifice in order to destroy the vortex um and Dream kills her and Rose is able to continue to walk freely amongst the living with her her family with her brother and she uh continues uh, continues her life as as it normally is it would be and then there's a slight epilogue where dream faces or confronts desire rather because he realizes that these all of these events have been sort of her doing in some way or some form and he he wants to get down to the bottom of it but uh desire doesn't necessarily reveal her desires um and she uh uh or they rather receive a threat that should his domain ever be infiltrated or should he ever be crossed again there will be there will be consequences and i will and i will always take that as a threat when uh you take that from somebody with the power of dream and and i think that was a, a really cool way to to sort of end it uh, a really poignant note, and I think it's a, a clean break that leads into some of the stuff that happens uh, in the next few uh, issues. I thought it was really interesting, too, because you have the context of uh, what was issue nine, where we explore the history with his, with his lover. Yes. Um, because it shows that he's broken the rules before, and he clearly doesn't give a shit. So, like, I totally take that as, like, a, a, a threat that he would absolutely follow through right. with. Right, yep, yep um cool i mean uh if i don't know if we we pretty much covered the the majority of it like is there uh anything that you guys like wanted to finish up on uh i did i do have one small gripe um in at toward the end of this uh arc and and i my ipad died so i can't i can't look at exactly where it's at but it's um rose is captured by one of these serial killers and Funland? uh yeah is, is is raped 
But the rape takes place over two panels, and then Morpheus comes in, and the day is saved. Wait, does it or, actually happen? I didn't think it actually happened. Gilbert. She, she's not actually. Yeah, I don't. She's, she, she's Are you tossed sure? around. Because I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure they say it, it happened later at some point later. No, so I think so. I, hold up. I just pulled it up. So like she's fighting him uh, and then she's fighting him. She grabs the paper and then she screams out for Morpheus. He, she's on the ground and then uh, he pops up. Yeah, it looked um, like he was just on top of her strangling right, right. her. But I'm pretty sure they say at some point later on that she is raped. I don't know, man. I don't. No, nah, I don't. I don't remember Me that either. The mo- okay, maybe I, maybe I took the, it wrong. The most thing the it says in this ending ending panel, she's walking out. She says, "Rose doesn't know what's going on. Doesn't understand what's happening. Doesn't care. The one thing penetrated. One thing she knows. She's getting out." I think maybe that language might have. Ah, uh, yeah. Maybe you took you. Okay. Took that language the wrong way. Okay. All right. Because I was gonna. I was gonna say how supremely like uh like you know I'm, i don't want to knock yes i do how supremely shitty of this dude gaiman to write that scene that way and have it and this is what i thought in my head because i thought the rape happened this thing happens over two panels and then the she saved i just like why add that well yeah it sounds yeah. like it, it avoided the thing that you were mad about well pardon me for trying to explain myself like no, I, no, no. I was bringing no, it up no it's fine i was just trying to get us off the subject and make light again because this is a this is supposed to be about monkey shine <laughs> <laughs> what are you fucking kidding we just spent three hours trying to figure out this consciousness of space or whatever the fuck <laughs> he's gotta land the plane at some point end this Kale's. shit get out of All here right. land us get out of my house right. we're leaving kale's house we got kicked out um comic con at home's over <laughs> we went on his floor and he said out would you guys uh what would you guys rate this and what would you recommend like closing thoughts on this hard nine yeah yeah and i'd recommend it definitely it's it's a great book. It's uh, it, it I think it obviously has a, an enormous reputation, and I think it's one of those kind of series that's looked at as an all time great. And based on you know this taste of it, um, I I feel like that reputation is earned. I I really enjoyed it, and um, I think I think anybody who has the stomach for it will definitely get something out of it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely one of the greatest stories I've read in this medium. I say that with the caveat that we didn't finish it and, you know, it could suck from issue 17 on, you know, knows probably not, (laughs) I mean, but, um, maybe. And so speaking to what we've read only, uh, I think it's very, very, very great. If you have the desire to read, stories that are outside of the superhero realm which i'm sure you do uh this is worth your time there's a lot to like it is a little tough to read sometimes you gotta stick with it um only in the sense that there's a lot of concepts and things that get thrown at you and you have to be ready to pick those up um because there's very little hand holding so with those things in mind, I certainly give it a nine, and I certainly say, yeah, if you if you are into this type of story, 
then it is for you and you should read it. Yeah, Hard Nine, I don't know that I would readily recommend it to just anybody. Hmm. Definitely not my mom. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, someone who is a fan of horror and maybe, you know, more heady concepts, I think I would, yeah, readily recommend it. You son of a bitch, you set that up from the beginning. That was nice. Hey, that's the kind of person I am. Set up. Uh, yeah, I don't think I would recommend it to everyone. It's a little heady, and I think if you're a person who appreciates headier things, I would recommend it to you, whether or not you like comic books or graphic novels or whatever. You'll also get something out of this. Uh, as for me, I would, I would give it a 10 out of 10. Yes! This gets Marco's seal of approval, which is... Read it. Worthless. <laughs> oh. So if Swamp Thing's an 11, what is, what is this? Yeah, strike? it's like a 9.5 time. Yeah, okay. comfortably. Um, no, but 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 this is for me like a another like it, it one of the other books that I read after Swamp Thing that like hit the mark for me that was uh, formative in my reading of the medium. So I, I hold it in very high regard and, and I'm really glad that, that you guys enjoyed it and I'd definitely recommend it to anybody listening right now. Um, and if you have any other recommendations for us, we're closing out, but hit us up again on the discord. That's probably the easiest and best way to, to connect with us on our social media, the comics pals on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, be sure to send us an email. If you like this, if you want to talk to us, the comics pals at gmail.com. That's another great way to be able to hit us up and, uh, get your comments or questions potentially read on the show. If we like them, uh, and with that, we're closing out. Thanks guys. Take care, guys. See you next month. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Dream. Make it about your destiny.